In the fourth season of this podcast, we'll be exploring some great works of literature that have something to suggest to us about the nature of morality. No doubt literature can help to illuminate all sorts of moral issues and perspectives. But does literature make us morally better people? Probably not, at least not in a direct sense. After all, we're told that Don Quixote's brain dried up because of all his reading. But stories can encourage us to see something from another's point of view. And they can make us more sensitive in discerning various shades of feelings and emotions. And they can help us to become a little more authentic and a little more honest with ourselves. And if it's true that literature mirrors life, then through reading, we can come to know a little more of life, no? So, literature may not make us better people, but all things considered, it certainly doesn't make us any worse. This is The Wisdom Of, and this is Episode 2, Genesis and the Story of Abraham and Isaac. Today, in our very small part of the world, we're having an unexpected snowfall. And because of this, my moderator and dear friend isn't able to make it out to, well, that much-coveted The Wisdom of Headquarters. So, it looks like I'm going to have to try to do this one all alone this time. But before I do, he did want me to mention Bob Dylan here. He told me that Dylan gets flack in some parts for being extremely wordy in his songs. But when it comes down to it, actually sums up the Abraham and Isaac story pretty precisely. So, for those of you who don't know it, here's the opening line from his great song, Highway 61. God said to Abraham, go kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. Yeah, you can't get more precise than that. So, is Dylan on track here? Well, let's find out. Let's start then with um, a brief summary. So, in Genesis 2.2, God tells Abraham, quote, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. End of quote. So Abraham took Isaac and two servants and a donkey and set off on the 50-mile journey. When they arrived, Abraham ordered the servants to wait with the donkey while he and Isaac went up the mountain. He told the men, quote, We will worship and then we will come back to you. End of quote. Isaac then asked his father, where the lamb was for the sacrifice. And Abraham answered that God would provide the lamb. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham bound Isaac with ropes 
and placed him on the stone altar. Just as Abraham raised the knife to slay his son, the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham to stop and not harm the boy. The angel said he knew that Abraham feared the Lord because he had not withheld his only son. So God called to Abraham, quote, I swear that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. End of quote. Largely on the basis of his unwavering obedience to God in this story, Abraham has come to be regarded as the father of faith. He's a spiritual exemplar for Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So, I don't know, maybe the best place to start is by first saying something about the general nature of faith. You know, it's said in the New Testament, in Corinthians, that, quote, we walk by faith, not by sight, end of quote. So, faith then obviously involves no sort of transparency. It seems to be a form of knowing that escapes clear rational analysis or transcends traditional categories of language and thought. Faith, in other words, is in some sense to know something, but in a way that cannot be objectively measured or given rational analysis. In this way, faith seems to necessarily involve risk or the or the possibility that we might be wrong i mean think about it if our apprehension of something were conclusive if it had um demonstrable proof then it's hard to understand how knowing this could be understood to in any way involve faith no faith and certainty are no bedmates Actually, love is a good example here. I mean, we can't really prove the truth or reality of love in a relationship. We have no way of ultimately knowing if the other person um, really loves us or if they do, will continue to. Instead, we, we take a leap of faith in the other person and in our relationship to them. Anyway, you know, this reminds me a little bit about Tolstoy. You know, Tolstoy talked quite a bit about faith in his autobiographical memoir, A Confession. A memoir, by the way, which is brutally honest. In that book, he wrote about his lapse into depression in his early 50s. Basically, he, he succumbs to a kind of nihilism or sense of meaninglessness because he, for the first time, comes to fully realize not only the inevitability of his own death, but the eventual death or destruction of all things. This fact, the seeming futility of it all, the fact that there is no ultimate foundation or justification for his daily actions and projects, this paralyzes him and causes him to stop caring about everything, including his work, but also, remarkably, his own children. For after all, they too, he realizes, will die. Well, in an attempt to get himself out of this, he starts to seek out answers to the question of the ultimate meaning of life. 
He, he spends time asking all sorts of experts, including philosophers and scientists, but to no avail. As much knowledge as they all have, nothing they say is of any help. But then it dawns on him that most of the poor, less educated people throughout history have lived, well, perfectly meaningful lives. So Tolstoy finally comes to understand that he's all the while been searching in the wrong place for the answer. What most people in history have had is, well, faith. And it's this that has sustained them and provided them with the foundation they needed. More specifically, what Tolstoy realizes is that the answer to the question of the meaning of life lies not in the domain of rational knowledge, a domain which would of course include the scientists. No, the answer lies in the realm of irrational knowledge. And this is what faith is for him, a form of irrational knowledge. And more precisely, what faith does for him is that it gives him the, the intimation of the infinite, something beyond the impermanence, the, the blood-drenched mathematics, to quote Camus, that characterizes the physical world. Now, with a sense of the existence of the infinite in hand, Tolstoy finds the, the ultimate foundation and justification he needs, one that, as he says, is not destroyed by suffering privation, and death. So, for him, it's faith that is the strength of life, and so with faith, he can go on to live. Okay, having said something about the, the general nature of faith, I now want to get a little more specific and take a look at a, a very important thinker. The person that I want to take a look at here is the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, who, by the way, is one of the most passionate voices for religious faith. You see, for Kierkegaard, trying to prove that God exists is completely pointless. And this is basically because our reasoning capacities are limited when it comes to the, the metaphysical, or as he sometimes calls it, the unknown. So, we have to stop attempting to prove God's existence with rational or logical means, or stop trying to strive for objective certainty. And instead, we have to pull back a little bit, or let go, and let the reality of God's existence express itself to us. Faith begins where thinking leaves off, he tells us. Actually, more specifically, what Kierkegaard encourages us to do is to stop our dispassionate intellectualizing and instead to perform an act of will or take a leap of faith. When we let go of our compulsion for absolute certainty and just take a, a blind but passionate leap of faith instead, we will be rewarded by experiencing the reality of God in all sorts of non rational ways. Actually, once again, there is a similarity here with what it means to be in a loving relationship. How so? Well, in the sense that it might be prudent 
to let go sometimes and stop analyzing every aspect of our relationship so that our authentic emotions might be released and allowed to permeate our shared experiences. Okay, but what the heck does all of this have to do with the story of Abraham and Isaac? Well, Kierkegaard in his book Fear and Trembling, great title, interprets this story in Genesis as the greatest example of what it means to have faith. Specifically, of course, Abraham's obedient response to God's command to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. By the way, uh, so did Martin Luther, who also praised Abraham for his blind faith, for his um, uncritical obedience to God. Now, for Kierkegaard, this is the paradigm of faith because, well, there doesn't seem to be any rational basis, no reliable evidence for Abraham to appeal to in making his decision to kill his son. In this way, Kierkegaard praises Abraham for willing and acting rather than thinking or reasoning. But what's more, what God is asking Abraham to do is not only intellectually absurd, but I think obviously, most importantly, unethical. This seems to be part of Kierkegaard's point, that we cannot understand Abraham's behavior in ethical terms. That, from the point of view of ethics, Abraham is simply nothing more than the murderer of his own son, or at least guilty of attempted murder. In other words, what he seems to be doing is subordinating his duties and feelings as a father to his personal relationship with God. Now, it's really important to understand that Kierkegaard does not trivialize this, and this is what makes his analysis so intriguing and persuasive, even though there's clearly a fair amount of poetical and theological license on his part. Anyway, he thinks that what's omitted from the Genesis story is Abraham's anxiety. And so he constantly reminds us of the full terror Abraham must have experienced in his encounter with a divine command. Now, I think it's pretty clear that Kierkegaard had a much larger project in mind in doing this. He basically wanted to use the Abraham story, as he understands it, with all its anguish and uncertainty, as a kind of antidote to the absolute spiritual lethargy and superficiality of the modern world. In other words, he thinks that the true meaning of faith has been lost for Christians today. Faith has been, well, cleaned up and sugar-coated. True faith, or to be genuinely religious, Kierkegaard believed, had nothing to do with dogma or heading sleepily and mechanically to church on Sundays. Rather, it meant, like early primitive Christianity, taking a leap of faith, living in risk and uncertainty, and shouldering the greatest possible insecurity before God. It meant, most broadly, having to make crucial decisions without having a standard 
to appeal to in making them. This is why Kierkegaard admires Abraham. And not insignificantly, it's why Kierkegaard is considered to be the father of existentialism. Now, I wonder if there's any way to make sense of this strange story from an ethical point of view. In other words, is there any way of bringing Abraham's behavior back into the ethical terrain? Well, maybe one way of doing so might be to see what Abraham is doing as a sort of protest against a kind of flattened-out and conformist morality. In fact, Kierkegaard does criticize the, the German philosopher Hegel for pushing a kind of social morality, which Kierkegaard sees as a, as a kind of reduction of moral life to everyday duties and obligations. So, so maybe we can understand Abraham's seeming transgression as a, well, as a rally against something like herd morality. The story, then, is really about a call to transcend our limited, trivial, and parochial ties or loyalties. Or maybe there's another way of finding an ethically compelling justification for Abraham's act. That's to say, maybe the real target of the story is the view that there can never be um, permissible, exceptional cases in ethics. The view, in other words, that ethics is absolutist in nature, a matter of black and white, right and wrong. And again, this is not without some plausibility, since Kierkegaard does criticize another German philosopher, Kant, who famously argues for a kind of ethical absolutism, or for categorical rights and wrongs. On this account, then, when Kierkegaard talks about Abraham's religious point of view and opposes it to the ethical, we might assume that he's really just talking about important exceptions to a rigid ethical framework. Now, if either of these interpretations are correct, it would seem like, well, that maybe Kierkegaard comes somewhat close to Nietzsche's view. I mean, Nietzsche also argued against what he called herd morality, and instead championed an individual value-creating view. He also criticized the dominant moral theories, for example, um, utilitarianism and Kantianism, for precluding personal excellences. And along these lines, he even put forth the stronger and more controversial view that having one morality for all is ultimately detrimental to the higher type of person. Anyway, to, to go back to Kierkegaard, now these possible interpretations I mentioned, they're all really interesting, to be sure. But there's a problem here, an elephant in the room, actually. And it's this. Kierkegaard tells us explicitly that either Abraham is a murderer or a man of faith. So, if we want to maintain our fidelity to the text, 
Kierkegaard can't make it any more clear for us. Abraham's behavior, therefore, cannot in any way be ethically understood. So, even though Kierkegaard thinks Abraham's act is wrong, he clearly at the same time thinks that moral duties do not constitute the highest claim on the human being. Now, this may not pose a difficulty for some people. After all, throughout history, very few have been more revered by so many diverse people than Abraham, the the great patriarch of the three enduring monotheistic religions. Even though I think they all see Abraham's act as immoral, they still, in their own ways it seems, praise him for it, portraying it as the paradigm of religious obedience. Well, it's difficult for me to go along with this. It's why I admire Job so much more. I mean, at least the pious Job stood up to God and questioned him. I think it's dangerous and inhumane to explain away the the complete rupture of the ethical with some sort of grander religious idea or scheme. You know what's interesting? Kierkegaard, at some point in his discussion, asks us to imagine um, a young man today wishing to repeat Abraham's sacrifice, That, that in order to demonstrate his true faith, he too wishes to sacrifice his loved one. Now, if our feeling when we hear this is a deeply unsettling one, and that if we go on to infer, which we would, that this person must be pathological or sick, or just deluded in his imagination that God called out to him, then what keeps us from thinking the very same of Abraham? What if Abraham were just this man? What would we think of him then? What then has been lost in translation? You know, in Rembrandt's painting of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham, in the the middle of his act, is made by the great artist to face the heavens rather than his son. Here, Abraham's eyes speak volumes. His obsession with the heavens and the neglect of his shackled son is, well, simply chilling. There's something very eerie about this faithful man whose faith in an abstract, transcendent entity takes precedence over his earthly, emotional ties to his child. Now, Sure, there are times when venturing out beyond the boundaries of the rational into the realm of the absurd has its value. But not here. Not when doing so threatens the near-infrangible and sacred sphere in which parent and child are united. There is a greater faith and a higher love, but to me... It's not what Kierkegaard or the Old Testament writers think. For me, it's a matter of the love of a parent for a child that wants nothing more than to be there to bring it into the light of a new day. 
faith may begin where thinking leaves off, but not where the heart abandons the truths a hand can touch. to the wisdom of podcast if you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general visit wisdomofpod.com and as usual we love to read your questions and comments reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on twitter at wisdom underscore pod our next episode sophocles oedipus rex <laughs>